Hello there. You're listening to Sasitup podcast by Sashwath and Oscar where we speak with startup founders, venture capitalists and some of the leading talents in the world. We listen to their personal journeys and share their stories that shape their world view. Kiran is a principal at UTech Japan. He's a AI researcher turned deep tech VC and he's also a recipient of Forbes Asia 30 under 30. Kiran spearheaded Deloitte Tomatsu Venture Supports India's Southeast Asia related startup and open innovation activities. Welcome to the show Kiran. Thanks a lot for having me and thanks for your contribution to the ecosystem as well while doing this podcast. Awesome Kiran. So I think you come from a very unique background. You started off from India, Bangalore and then eventually you are currently based out of Japan as well. So could you give a little bit of brief or an insight into the Japanese venture capital ecosystem or how the funds are currently evaluating few of the Indian startups in the portfolio? For sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a small town in India called Bhadravati in Karnataka, did my undergrad in Bangalore, came to Japan 6 and a half years back from my masters in machine learning funded by Japanese government and University of Tokyo, started a company in the social enterprise space but failed spectacularly which was useful in its own right I guess. and then as you mentioned i led the large japan's open innovation activities for a while and for the last three and a half years i've been a leading uh, global ai investment at utech so let me just mention a bit about utech so utech is university of tokyo edge capital we are a 550 million dollar venture capital firm investing in global deep science and technology companies about two thirds are you could say japanese companies and about one third are uh, indian companies we invest in all sectors of deep science and technology India specifically is very interesting from us uh, from I could say like from a couple of standpoints first i think is india has elements of four things probably because of the stem focused india is perhaps the only emerging country or one of the few emerging countries that has innovation that can parallel the best which is silicon valley so that's one second there is a large b2b market as well in that india has elements of china so of course it's not as large as china but the local b2b market is also emerging that's good third is unlike some of the other startups indian startups tend to be global from day 1 or at least day 1.5 wherein there are a couple of indian deep tech companies which can serve large unmet needs in either in us us eu or japan or even in emerging countries such as southeast asia and africa that's the third element and the fourth one is you get all the above at a fairly affordable cost structure so that's kind of the primary reason why we are interested and even when we invest in india or singaporean deep tech companies we look for strong synergies with japan and in general i can see a lot of complementarity between uh, india and japan i can talk about it if you are interested at a later point i think as a fellow deloitte alumni as well i've seen deloitte tomatsu venture growing out here in bangalore they keep on having a lot of events quarterly as well as quite a lot of annual events as well So quite curious how the Japanese VCs are looking into the Indian ecosystem and into the investments as well. In my few um, discussions with few of the Japanese VCs out here in Bangalore I've realized that they usually go for seed round of funding which is very close to a series A kind of funding but not very pre-series kind of range. Uh, do you think that's true as well? It depends. So uh, so for us because we are a deep tech company and the deep tech most of the deep tech startups uh, whether it's India or Southeast Asia are most of the ones are still in C to Series A stage. So we go in pretty early as well. We tend to go in at the 0 to 1 phase. So we go in at a phase where the startup has the core technology but the go to market model is still not formed yet. So most of our investments uh, in India and Singapore has been pre Series A Series A where we go in with a lead position. however that being said 
the point that you said is true because we would like to support seed stage companies as well we often establish collaborations to support seed stage companies in these regions uh, for example while pre series a and series a we do directly in india singapore to support seed stage companies we have partnered with bloom ventures in india through a program uh, whereas in singapore we collaborate with a couple of government related entities and universities such as national university of singapore a star etc so we usually tend to go in at the fairly early stages as well because we would like to offer hands on support to the companies in terms of uh, hr in terms of building the global business model for global expansion as well as uh, potential r&d synergies for those startups with japanese ecosystem at large so utech as well as you are embedded into the deep tech investing ecosystem right so you are investing into deep tech and emerging technology companies so quite curious to know how are some of the deep tech companies using the current saas business models maybe you could shed some thoughts around it yeah that will be very helpful yeah i think traditionally you could say there are three types of segments that saas companies cater to right there are probably four elements first one is who is the customer second is what is the go to market model third what is your growth engine and fourth what is your pricing strategy so if you try to categorize saas companies into three segments based on these four elements you could say first is a enterprise saas companies which cater to fortune 2000 companies as customers their go to market model is usually high touch sales with a dedicated sales force the growth engine is usually what you call sales led growth right and the pricing is usually the annual contract value that being said uh, over the last few years uh, two other interesting emerging models have emerged right so let me talk about these two emerging models of saas and then i would love to talk about how some of our deep tech companies are using it so the first emerging model is the mid market saas segment right the customers are usually smes or msmes or they are small teams in large corporations the usual go to market model is self serve saas with inside sales or digital marketing and the growth engine usually is what we call product led growth or plg and the pricing is usually freemium kind of like tiered subscription some of the companies that have pioneered this model are slack airtable freshworks these are the popular mid market companies and on the third end are the prosumer kind of companies which cater to developers and other creators which essentially use either commercial open source or api based models for go to market their usual growth engine is community led growth and the pricing is usage or transaction based so these are the three ways i categorize the saas companies enterprise mid market and prosumers i can talk a bit about how our deep tech companies are using this the first one i would uh, like is uh, we have a portfolio company that originally began in india called tricog that does ai driven analysis of heart diseases and they offer solutions for hospitals and clinics so tricog initially started out with india with a sales led growth model by using their own sales force in order to build a network of indian hospitals and clinics and diagnostic chains and expand however when they expanded internationally they adopted elements of mid market companies to grow internationally so what they did was they catered to the sme msme segment and then started upselling from it so this is one way in which a deep tech company which began as an enterprise focus used mid market as a way to accelerate their international sales so the second example i can give is a singapore new york based company which is my portfolio called opale ai they offer ai driven products for commodities asset clouds for uh, hedging and trading so their key clients are who you can imagine the large 50 plus billion dollar revenue type of clients that is still their key client base and their main pricing strategy was acv or annual contract value however they have now learned from the prosumer segment 
where they are trying to implement usage-based or transaction-based fee in order to scale their model. So that's another learning as well. And I have one more company called Agara in India, US uh, that offers AI-driven customer support for uh, companies. And they are using a self-serve model as a second motion, though their main clients are companies like PNG, which are Fortune 2000. Now they have a self-serve engine as a second motion in order to accelerate their growth. And these are some of the ways in which a couple of our deep tech companies are using SaaS business models. I was lucky to have your slide back that you have presented in UTech as well around valuing SaaS company. Why don't you put your investor hat on and give some thoughts around how you do you value a SaaS company as well as what kind of company would be a dream company in your portfolio? I think the only way SaaS companies are being valued is who pays the highest price these days, right? Because folks like Tiger Global and others doing almost a deal per day, which is, I think, in a broader way, fantastic for the ecosystem. So you could say the traditional way most of the revenue generating SaaS companies, whether they are deep tech or not, used to be valued is based on last 12 month revenue, right? Probably that has gone off. So usually now the key kind of valuation is based on next 12 month revenue, sometimes next 24 month forward revenue as well. So I would consider in order to come up with a valuation, there are like four or five key metrics. First one is obviously we look at last 12 month revenue growth, which is at least around 40% for most companies. So that's common. The second thing that we look at is gross margins. The, here is where I think several of the AI companies that have service business models tend to have gross margins of 40%-ish, but the AI pure product companies, which we are interested in, tend to have gross margins of 70% or plus. So when we look at AI companies as well, we look for the AI product companies that have gross margins of 70 plus. Third metric that we look at, obviously, is rule of 40. That's the sum of uh, profitability plus revenue growth. But the two key metrics which have recently emerged as a couple of my favorite metrics for SaaS companies is first net dollar retention or net revenue retention, which means that if your company has a net revenue retention of 125%, so even if the company doesn't acquire any new customers, the business will still grow at 25% next year. It's like an interest rate on your deposit, right? So when we look for companies, we look for usually net dollar retention of at least about 125%. And the last one is obviously sales efficiency, which means that for every dollar of sales amount spent, sales and marketing expense, how much new ARR you are generating. So these are some of the things that we look at when we invest in SaaS companies. Talking about investments, Kieran, you already mentioned there are a lot of business models around SaaS, right? We have like product-led growth, community-led growth, design-led, sales-led. How important are those business models for you when you think about an investment? It's very interesting. I think the first thing that we look at for deep tech companies, especially, I think they need to start one layer before product market fit. So what they need to think about is what is called pain technology fit, which means that what is your customer pain and what is your technology? Does your technology even work? And the third, is your technology the right solution to that customer pain? So which means to say that your business model kind of is entirely dependent upon which customer segment you're focusing. And from that standpoint, I think what COVID, for example, has also shown is the top-led sales model, which is a sales-led growth, has been tough for many companies, right? So that is where we see a lot of importance for product-led growth or community-led growth, especially the element of product-led growth that we are very interested in for AI product companies is what is the time to value for your customer, which means that does your customer have to spend a lot of time installing the product, integrating the product, into their workflow or is it a company wherein your customer can kind of download your product and start using it immediately and within the first few hours or first few days you see the value 
that part of product-led growth has been very interesting. Several of our deep tech companies are trying to use product-led growth in order to drive the adoption. And then once some small teams inside large corporations start using it, then they overlay an enterprise sales motion on top of it and upsell if that makes sense. That's super interesting because you said like you have to start with the customer pain because I feel like many SaaS companies go in there and say, okay, we want to design a product-led growth company. This is our business case and then think about the customer pain afterwards. So your suggestion is start with the customer pain and then the business model comes around that, right? Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, if you are a company like uh, our portfolio company, Agara, which provides AI-driven customer support solution, their main clients are Fortune 2000 companies. You can't say that for that product, we will do product-led growth, right? You still require that sort of thing. However, if they themselves actually, when they want to cater to the D2C first brands who want to do customer support, they have a slightly different product, which is a web widget, which can go. And for that, product-led growth is very important. So it depends upon the customer pain and the customer segment, as you clearly mentioned, Oscar. So in general, what do you think? How important is it for a startup or for a company to utilize AI? Is it like mandatory to do it in these times because otherwise the competitors will get ahead of you? Yeah, I think the way we think about technology in general and AI is, and when we look for deep tech companies, what we mean is where technology can be one of the core differentiator. That being said, technology will never be the sole differentiator, right? The way I see is whether your AI advantage comes from your data defensibility or you have a superior algorithm or you have a superior integration that combines syndication of several things or superior deployment, training times, so on. It usually gives you a head start of maybe 12 to 18 months over your competitors. The onus is on the startups in order to build their go-to market in those 18 months and expand their advantage because technology at the end of the day will converge, right? That's how we think about technology in general. That's great. When we talk about AI, there's a lot of stuff going on in the AI industry. What AI innovations or topics are you most interested in, like personally? Yeah, that's a great question. By the way, uh, my research when I was in University of Tokyo, that was uh, three, four years back, was on a technique called recurrent neural networks and long short-term memory, which is mainly used for sequential processing. That has already kind of become obsolete, which means that the innovation is growing at such a fast pace. A couple of my personal investment thesis are, uh, I'm these days very interested in digital humans or computationally created virtual beings, which can be used for multiple things. I think that is becoming interesting. From a technology standpoint, maybe let me talk about three technologies and their impact. The first thing I'm interested in what is called AutoML or automated ML. What that can do is it can enable not just the data scientists, but non-technical users to deploy machine learning. So that really empowers what is called citizen developers, right? So somebody who is a business analyst who does not really know to deploy machine learning models, so using AutoML technology, they can do so. So it expands the pie for everyone. So that is one technology I'm interested in. Second is uh, we've all known deep learning where it requires huge amount of data, but several real world use cases have very little data. So I'm very interested in techniques such as transfer learning and few short learning, which can enable you to do machine learning with less data. That is the second thing I'm interested in. And third thing is obviously privacy is a big issue. And can we do machine learning without actually exposing the data to the algorithms? So in this privacy-preserving computing, I'm interested in techniques such as federated learning, homomorphic encryption, et cetera. So broadly speaking, these are the AI technology and their impacts that I'm tracking. And I look to find such startups in the future. Awesome. So I think the last point was very interesting to me as well, like data privacy and a lot of data models around it. 
So there are a lot of data restrictions in countries like Japan or in countries like uh, Europe as well because of the GDPR laws, etc. So these regulations are not very strict out here in our home country in India. So do you think that this particular lease makes India a great model for data mining as well or a great market per se? I think it's uh, it works both ways. I think there are two models. One is uh, the importance of data security is, uh, can be understressed. So we have a portfolio company here in Japan called AI Insight. It's not my portfolio. My colleague named uh, Kishide, they went public just uh, last year and at the peak, the market cap was about $2.5 billion. They actually invested 80% of their R&D efforts in, uh, they, they offer an OCR solution. So their technology itself was good, but the 80% of their R&D cost was coming actually by building security features and that actually helped them expand their client base. So the importance of security is very much there. And your point regarding countries like India is very true. Of course, we hope that the data loss becomes stronger and more standardized over time. But in some sectors, such as healthcare and life sciences, the current lack of law itself could be a significant advantage in that you could use those data in order to train those machine learning algorithms. That being said, whether you're a startup in a regulated market or unregulated market, a startup has to take their own precautions to ensure they anonymize the data and all that before throwing them to the algorithms, right? That needs to be done. But sometimes the lack of data regulation itself could be a competitive advantage. That's there as well. Excellent. I'm pretty sure you'll be tracking a lot of deep tech startups in the Southeast Asian market as well. And majority of the AI companies may have a, a SaaS component or an element in their business models going forward. Do you think that will be a prevalent uh, model in quite a lot of startups sprouting out of the Southeast ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, definitely. Uh, initially, uh, even out of Southeast Asia, we saw companies that were predominantly using science and technology in countries like Singapore and catering to the larger markets in US and Europe and to an extent Japan as well, right? That we have seen. However, the market itself in Southeast Asia is developing a lot. I am sure we'll see more AI-led companies focusing on the mid-market segment. Whether those SMEs happen to be in Southeast Asia itself or in other markets, I'm sure we would see several of AI companies coming in Southeast Asia that will be using product-led growth or even community-led growth in order to cater to that segment. One thing we have seen probably in India that we have not yet seen a lot in Southeast Asia is developer-led companies, right? In India, you've got companies like Postman and several others, Hasura and others, who cater to the developing community itself. Even in Japan, we don't see that yet. It's a bit contradictory, though Japan gave birth to things like Ruby on Rails. We haven't seen such companies itself, but of course, I think there are other companies that are coming up as well. And then there are a bunch of other companies who have nothing to do with developer type of growth, but still they like to use the community-led growth kind of business model, right? By giving power to their early users and using those early users as evangelists or reference. I think uh, you have lived in Japan for a good amount of time. And I'm curious, what are the several entrepreneurial themes that you see in this Indo-Japan corridor or Indo-Japan startup ecosystem, if I were to say? Of course, you know, Indian startups have a very strong presence in American or European markets as well, especially SaaS companies have a major market in the US ecosystem. Going forward, what do you think? I mean, what's your worldview as to how the Indo-Japan ecosystem or the corridor will develop or what are some of the themes that will really take prominence? That's a fantastic question, Shashwat. I think that's great. I always see a Japan and India as super complementary. I grew up in a really small town in India and now I live in Tokyo, which is quite possibly the biggest city in the world. Japan is traditionally very strong in hardware, whereas India is strong in software. Uh, Japan is a fairly, the population is fairly old. India, obviously, the population is young. 
Japan is probably one of the largest B2B markets in the world, whereas India is the largest B2C market. And in terms of the way people approach things as well, India is extremely good at speed of execution, whereas Japan has that long-term thinking embedded into the society, which is fascinating as well. So my personal view is that when your mind is pulled together in all different directions, you tend to learn a lot. I always say that I think Japan sometimes runs the software of yesterday on the hardware and infrastructure of tomorrow, whereas India actually runs the software of tomorrow on the hardware and infrastructure of yesterday. I think that's kind of the complementarity. And in terms of the startup ecosystem as well, one thing I would like to highlight in Japan is that if you look at the public markets, the companies that have IPO'd, in most countries, US, Europe, and even in other countries, the top 10 companies with largest market cap among the startups who IPO'd are ride-sharing, marketplaces, e-commerce, payments, so on and so forth. But if you look at the top 10 startups that IPO'd in Japan, the diversity is great. There are some life sciences companies, there are some robotics companies, there are some some AI product companies, and there are some e-commerce companies as well. I think the diversity of uh, the startups coming out of Japan between deep tech and B2C, I think that is a, is a good, interesting thing. And it is ably supported by Tokyo Stock Exchange, which is the third largest uh, startup exchange in the world after NASDAQ and NYSE. I'm also curious as to Japanese entrepreneurs would also be looking into the Indian market, right? As a bigger market to play in maybe B2C segments, maybe in IoT segments, etc. So do you think going forward, right, a lot of uh, Japanese entrepreneurs would like to uh, co-create or, you know, co-innovate with a few of the Indian entrepreneurs as well? I love that you use the word co-create and co-innovate. I think because you need to be built for that from day one, right? It's pretty difficult to say that, uh, let's say any Japanese company which predominantly caters to Japanese market or US market to say that, hey, we will just expand to Southeast Asia and India, like Indonesia and India, just because the market is large. But there are several people. I think the relationship between two countries or two regions is also the relationship between people, right? Now we see several Japanese entrepreneurs and VCs not just going to Silicon Valley or Israel, but also taking trip to Jakarta or Bangalore. So I think we have already seen some examples of Japanese entrepreneurs co-creating such companies for Indonesian market and Vietnamese market especially in the tech segment. And recently, we have seen some examples of companies in Japan and India use their uh, network for distribution of cold chain, cold chain logistics, some companies in the agri-sector as well. But I'm sure that in future, as the Indian B2B market emerges, and as the Southeast Asian local B2B market emerges, I would see a lot of Japanese entrepreneurs would be interested in using one of those SaaS business models to expand outside of Japan. B2C, I see less potential. I think the Chinese and the American companies are fairly good at expanding to emerging markets in B2C. Whereas in B2B, I see a lot of potential for Japanese entrepreneurs to see growth in uh, Southeast Asian and Indian markets. Awesome. And one of the Indian entrepreneurs that I met in the NASCOM ecosystem is quoted that, you know, if you are an anvil, be patient. And if you are the hammer, then strike. The reference comes from his experience in Tokyo, as well as uh, making inroads into the Japanese ecosystem. The language plays a very important role. So you have to be really patient in the country. Sometimes the GTM takes beyond 12 months as well. Do you think that's the case? I mean, language will go in the coming years also play a very major role or do you sense there is a AI layer in between that can actually, you know, shorten this particular GTM as well? I think that's interesting. I think AI plus remote work has led to things becoming more interesting, right? Before we used to see, there used to be perception that, well, you know what, you want to close a small 20K deal, whether the CEO is in Europe or US or India, they have to come to Japan HQ and meet the CEO face to face, right? That was the assumption. But recently we saw one of the companies that we are tracking, we haven't invested in that. 
they just closed a 90k deal with a japanese company without meeting them i think that thing is slowly changing but the point that you mentioned is very clear perhaps the initial timing may take time but once you are in because of the long term thinking i think it's not just transactional it's more partnership based and here is where i think india and japan are both similar both are very trust based societies i think once the trust is established then everything else becomes secondary and of course japan is not just one thing i'd like to say is language is of course very important but not just language in the human terms right but also the body language which you can say as a user interface for human interaction right i think that thing as well japan not just the content but the context is also quite important on those terms i think things are getting better but those are some of the things to keep in mind awesome and my last question to you would be karan what are some of your favorite books novels or quotes in your day to day life that you'd love to, your listeners to uh, get inspired by some of my favorite books all time favorite books are the uh, first one is poor uh, charlie salmanak it's a book by charlie munger uh, charlie munger as you know is the right hand man of warren buffett probably one of the best thinkers of our times his mental models i think has helped me a lot in multiple things he mixes uh, the midwest wisdom with his kind of like raw intelligence i think that is something that i'd recommend second is a book called thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman uh, probably that's the best behavioral economics or behavioral psychology books and these days i have also been reading uh, novels one is a book called a gentleman in moscow by uh, uh, amar tolls it's a very feel good book good to read during this time and we often talk a lot about singularity ai's intelligence exceeding human one of the underrated and not well known books in this is a book called uh, the stories of ibis uh, by a japanese author called hiroshi yamamoto there is an english translation available and i read that one and that's another good book to read as well and you asked me one of my favorite quotes there is this quote from uh, scottish poet uh, robert louis stevenson it kind of goes like don't judge each day by the harvest you reap but by the seeds that you plant which means that you cannot rely too much upon uh, laurels of the past the way you kind of see the value of each day is what are you doing now which will help you in the future of course if you have done something in the past and if you are getting rewards for it now it's okay to celebrate but at the end of the day our focus should be on the seeds that we plant now for which we can reap rewards later awesome kiran thank you so much for coming to our show and sharing your nuggets of information loved it thank you so much